Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast. Hello, everybody. I am your host, Jacqueline. And I am Augustus. And together we are the Galaxy Electric. Um, This podcast started out of the private Facebook group that we started called the Cosmic Tape Music Club, where we have conversations about innovators in early electronic music that use magnetic tape for their compositions or invented things out of that movement or were inspired by it. Uh, We call it tape music from the space age because that was the era that was also influencing it. It's the common thread. Yeah, so from that, you know, we were having all these wonderful conversations, and a podcast was born. So here we are, back at it, episode three. This week, we are covering, you gonna let me say it? Wendy Carlos. I truly underestimated the amount of passionate love and support there is in the world for Wendy Carlos. We first started, you know, we announced to our group at the beginning of the month that this is what we'd be researching. That's what the group is all about. You know, we pick the the topic for the month and everyone shares what they know and, you know, what their experiences are, helps us, you know, gather our intel. And it overwhelmed us, the amount of information. It's perfectly aligned with who Wendy is, too. The amount of information people were sending us, um, the amount of just love and joy that she brings to people, and the amount of people. It's just, it's been really, really fun to have those interactions with all of you. And here we are to do our best to honor her work and how she's inspired us. Are you feeling inspired this I month, am. Augustus? Absolutely. Wendy was musical her whole life. She did. That seems to be a common thread we find with the people that we study. And technological her whole life. Yeah. So the things that, that I learned are that she started piano at the age of six, and by 10, she had done her first composition. Let me see what that was called. That was called... A trio for clarinet, accordion, and piano. Much more sophisticated than the titles I was giving my 10-year-old compositions. Speaking of, you know, her early years and sort of her prodigy nature. um, So at 10, she did her first, you know, very serious composition. And by 14, she had built a computer. This is 1953. Okay. I almost just said y'all. That's how you know, serious this is. 1953, she's 14 and she builds a computer and she wins a scholarship for building this computer. And I heard somewhere that this scholarship like was the bridge to getting her into Brown for college, but that's kind of a ways off. So I'm not quite sure how that connects, but the the scholarship was from the Westinghouse Science Fair. Um, It was for high school students. So at 14, she was in high school and very early, I would imagine, building a computer. So when we think about the timeline of that, you know, 1953, I haven't uh, seen, you know, what that computer was. Yeah, we're talking tubes. But I think the transistor had been invented by then. That is early. Sure. Yeah, she taught seminars about electronic music when she was still in school. Yeah, yeah, I was going to jump to that. So she did go to Brown University, and she intended to study music and physics, um, and is mostly credited with having a degree in physics and music. But from what I read, she didn't actually complete the physics side. Um, she ended up crafting like a unique sort of interdisciplinary study with music at the core and science, math, physics as sort of a backdrop for her interests and how that relates to music. So when she was at Brown, like I said, she did mostly study music with a sort of interest in math and science as how it relates to music. And like you said, she actually taught these sort of informal electronic music sessions. This may be off topic, but you know, she did build her own four track tape recorder, like in the fifties. Um, yeah, I she, think was, when she, she was, was still building a lot in high school of, yeah. and made a lot of, uh, recordings on it and 
found it laying around her studio later on and refurbished it just so that <laughs> she could, you know, get those recordings off the, the tapes. Oh, that's was, that machine you showed me. Yeah, it was really... Of, it doesn't look like what you think it would. It, it, was, really, it was really unique uh, in the sense that a four-track, you know, tape recorder may have existed for, like, bigger studios, but, you know, definitely not on, on the consumer level at that point. And if it did, it would have been really expensive. And so she was able to find a company, you know, given the time that had uh, components that, you know, you could basically make your own tape machine. And, you know, they sold the heads and, and you know, the, the uh, electromechanical aspects, you know, all separately. And like you just, you know, chose your, your motor and your headstock and, you know, what kind of preamps you wanted to use and you know you put them all together in this you know in your own enclosure that i was gonna say did it come with an enclosure probably you told to you how that? to mm -hmm. build so she was able to like stagger the uh quarter track headstocks so that they would record four tracks at once um and as long as she played the same tapes that she recorded back on it it would it would work it would it would right code uh, you know decode and encode them properly so she's doing DIY electronics and tape music in the early 50s. She's in high school. She's building computers. She's building four tracks. I do want to just touch on that while she was at, um, no, this is after. Yes. Okay. I want to make sure I get this timeline right. I know that there are a lot of people, perhaps you, who is listening that know more about certain aspects of things than we could ever know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, feel free to reach out and let us know what you think about what we're saying. <laughs> we're doing our best. It is. It's like uh, there could be a whole encyclopedia set just on Wendy. Also, we're just scratching the surface. So. Yeah. So hopefully this just gets you excited to dive into, you know. Some of these exclusive some, aspects. After Brown, she went to Columbia to study music composition but of course at that time the electronic music studio was in its heyday so the people she was studying with for composition just happened to be the pioneers in electronic music at the time um and while she was there she um uh, her student compositions i would say most of them if not all of them involved tape and that was a very common thing at the time like you would say like for flutes and tape or, you know, for, I can't even, harpsichord and tape, um, voice and tape. Like, those would be the composition names. It was one of the band, one of the orchestra, tape. Yes, yes, exactly. Like, tape was part of the orchestra, exactly. So I love tape. She did. Tape's cool. Um, Tape's you know, I think because, you know, we're very interested in the sort of genesis of electronic music coming from tape. Tape's good people. Tape's <laughs> Some of the compositions that she did were episodes for piano and tape. This is 1964. Pomposities for narrator and tape. I want to hear that one. That's 1965. And then Noah in 1965 was a two-hour opera that blended electronics with an orchestra. So that's the kind of work she was doing in grad school under Usachevsky. I was trying to find out where I can hear these. None of her music is on any of the streaming oh, or you YouTube. Oh, you absolutely can if you purchase it from her <laughs> right. website. So most people, you know, might have her original or reissued stuff on vinyl or CD. You know, she did a very thorough Wendy style re-release of everything on CD, uh, which if you go to her website, you can, you know, explore those. Um, but I but feel like you still have to go to... But hasn't been updated since 2009. Yeah. I don't know where these orders would I don't know land. that you can get a lot of these at this point. So there was a reissue of everything on CD. When I click on some of the links, these things are sold out. There's ways, there's Discogs, there's all these things. Um, the album that I have, I found while I was crate digging. So it was just sort of like a discarded you know, previous release on Jacqueline, vinyl. Jacqueline the Crate Digger. It's one of my favorite things to do, obviously. I just lucked into owning her music on vinyl. Um, Such a good one, too. Which one? Sonic Seasonings. Nice. Which, I mean, that's a whole branch of itself, right? There's this whole 
you know, new age ambient side of her that a lot of people credit her with doing it before anyone else. No surprise there. But so, you were saying that you don't believe that the credit is directed toward her enough. Not enough. I think, yeah. The way that, you know, Brian Eno gets to own that he created ambient music, it kind of takes over any space for Wendy Carlos to exist in that conversation. So right. let this be our attempt to give her yeah, some I've more never room really in that like conversation. Heard her name be you know synonymous with creating ambient and right should be well i think most most people or most things if you google wendy carlos it's going to be switched on bach we haven't even mentioned and those words yet i'd like to mention it which, as little as possible which from now on will be known as sob <laughs> sob um it is so important to her trajectory overall in terms of you know getting the advance being able to buy the equipment getting the notoriety, getting the Grammys, you know, becoming, you know, what that did for synthesizer music. But it's, it's just like a footnote in, in her life and in her work, honestly. I mean, I know it's a very large one, but I don't want to diminish its importance, but I do feel like it's been covered enough by, you know, people who know more about it. But, um, so back to the chronology, if I can, unless you were going to say something. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, for the record, Switched on Bach was a combination of uh, synthesizers and Bach music. And it was done multi-tracked, you know, using a Moog modular synthesizer. And you may have heard of these machines. They're, they're pretty hip. And it's brilliant. And if you've never listened to it, give it a listen. Try to find it on vinyl or CD. Yeah. Good luck. Um, she reissued it. I think there's a. She reissued a, a box set there. on CD. I see it all the time in record stores. That has some cool extras, but um, you can definitely get it. But again, you know, it takes a little bit more work a, than just a lovely loading listen. up Spotify. It blows your mind because every sound is synthesized, and you have to keep telling yourself that. Yeah. But uh, it's just, it's a work of art and deserved, honestly, all of the accolades. I mean, just the fact that it was made and supported so well. I mean, so much. By Columbia, a major record label. So many uh, pieces of electronic music just didn't get the support from sort of the mainstream people in charge but that was the whole point and of so this record, right? so the fact that this exists that it was supported that it was promoted that you know it was lauded um it sold well so i mean and that a lot helps of it had to but do they didn't Rachel, know that was gonna happen right a lot of it had to do with Rachel. yes so while she was getting her master's at columbia working in the columbia princeton electronic music center with usachevsky as her mentor and teacher uh he recommended that she work in a recording studio that she seemed to be, you know, Gotham recording studio, a very, just, she said is just a really small studio in New York city. Um, that he just said, you know what, you should probably go do this because you have these skills and it can fund your work as a composer. Uh, very smart, very helpful to have someone like that in your life to tell you these kinds of things. And something that you could just go out and do at that time. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, you know, flash forward to the nineties and you're working the intern scene for your entire life, not getting paid. (laughs) So I imagine she was getting paid. She was working as an engineer and a mastering engineer. And she mentioned too, that it was like radio contracts and department of defense contracts. They were doing these recordings for like, that's fascinating to me. I'm sure it was really boring, but also like if you could sample whatever those things were, it was probably really interesting. (laughs) While she was working at the recording studio, you know, she was still in school. And again, Ustachevsky, you know, recommended that she go to the, um, the AES conference, which audio engineering society. Yes. Thank you. Uh, which at the time was, you know, not a big deal. Just a couple people with booths. So not a big deal that she, she was walking around I want to be clear about this. Everybody had gone to lunch. Everyone had gone to lunch and she was walking around looking at different booths and she came upon a sleeping Robert Moog. 
That's how not big of a deal this conference was. People were at lunch and Robert Moog was napping at his booth, but it caught her eye because it was, you know, synthesizers. And I don't think anybody else at the conference had something like that. And I, don't I also think- don't think Usachevsky knew anything about this. Like she, he told her to go. And then while she was there, she stumbled upon Moog. I don't, yeah, I don't think she went there with the intention of visiting that booth. No, from the she didn't know what was going to be there. So she woke him up and then, you know, that's sort of the beginning of their lifelong friendship and collaboration. So they exchanged the data, be in the right place at the right time and born in the right place at the right time. And <laughs> that could be you too. <laughs> yeah. And Trumansburg, which is where the Moog factory was at the time, um, was close enough, you know, to New York city. Sure. That, you know, she has some really cool stuff on her website. Again, like most of our references from her website, because she's sort of like the ultimate source of her own information, right? She did so much work to archive her life that she really doesn't, if there's not an interview linked on her website, then she doesn't approve of it. And so we tried to just not address or look at anything that wasn't sort of Wendy approved. Um, just cause she's been so thorough, you know, I, I didn't really need to go anywhere else. I did. I did go other places, but I would always come back to her website and be like, okay, let me double check this. True story. Yeah. So on her website, she has some cool images of like the original like sales sheets for Moog and original like manuals and promo stuff. Um, And it's all very interesting if that's something that you are into sort of the history of Moog. She's, she's got a good bit of it on there. Yes, there's a page called On Bob Moog that she wrote, um, you know... Upon his passing upon in his 2005, passing. yeah. But when you're in there, you can kind of... She'll link to, like, almost every other word is a link to something else that she wrote on her website, so... Well, she ended up working with him, since we're on the topic of yeah, Moog. Yeah, here we are. Um, she ended up working with him as sort of an advisor um, mm-hmm. because of... he. I think he respected her for her musical prowess but also having enough of a soldering iron um yeah hand so to speak i was gonna say there was some some bit that i found where she described you know when she's working on those electronic devices in her basement and at the time you know you couldn't you know you kind of had to make this stuff up right she said you could get an oscillator you could make white noise um, but she was building devices in order to create her goal was to get a gated circuit to do percussive sounds. And so she used photo cells for attack and decay and they transferred the light into audio. So I only say this to tell you like, this is the kind of stuff she was doing the way she thought, the way she spoke. So, you know, her and Moog, I think could speak the same language and saw value in what the other person was better at. Yeah. But she wasn't, you know, she was on the level. (laughs) Absolutely. And oftentimes would, you know, give advice, you know, she was sort of on staff for Moog, but she got compensated with modules. Yes. Oh, right. I was going to say that was in my section about the, her first compositions that she did with tape. Um, her first commercial release. So most people think like she did switched on Bach and that was the first thing she did. And here we are. No, her first commercial release was Moog 900 series, electronic music systems. That's the name of the album. From 1967. Which they ended up reissuing and to this day are considered sort of like the standard, you know, at which all modulars are measured by. It's an introduction to the technical aspects of the Moog synthesizer. And so it's a nine minute single-sided mono LP. And it was narrated by Ed Stokes. So it had narration by him. And she, oh, so, so she I didn't met, do she the just narration. Did the, she just did the music. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so her compensation for doing this recording was to get her Moog equipment because she obviously had to have it, you and know, to do some amazing. She was doing, you know, she's a student at this point. No, she had just graduated. Oh, okay. And she yeah. was already working, if I'm not mistaken, in the commercial music field. So by getting this Moog equipment... She then started doing jingles she put herself and commercials. Yeah. So I think, you know, like we said, all the people in her life and the connection she was making, collaborations, mentors, like she ended up being able to get the equipment and get some gigs, you know, working in the recording studio, I imagine, led to her doing the jingles. So while she's in this season of her life, she meets Rachel, who is working as an assistant 
at Columbia Records to the sort of head person there, is an artist herself, a singer, and had come to New York to to be a jazz singer. But it says it was she was too shy to perform and things like that. I don't know the real story. We'll never really know. But she did end up working, um, you know, on the production side of music. And when she met Wendy, they, I don't know how they go from meeting to now they're partners and they live together and they're building this studio together. But whatever that journey was, it got them there. Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, you know. I think they, they, Wendy is a very impressive person. That production side of things. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. had the chops, you know, to make a business out of what she was doing. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's, it's, she seems to always have have the the business insight side of things to know that she was worth working together with. And once again, you know, Wendy's very collaborative and probably saw a similar spark in Rachel. There is a page on Wendy's website just about Rachel because she feels that Rachel does not get enough credit. Hmm. Um, You know, if you try to find stuff about Rachel, it's all sort of referring back to Wendy's website and like that she deserves more credit. Um, But nobody's really done, you know, a bio or retrospective on Rachel herself, which I would like to know more because she's such a big part of the creativity and innovation, not just the production and the business side of things, but to be in those conversations with Wendy and tracking with her and helping her, you know, build custom units for, you know, her machines and to understand what, what was needed on the production side well, for this to be she successful. More or less like, came up with the concept of switched on Bach. She did. Absolutely. So she was working at Columbia at the time and knew that they were doing this sort of series called mm-hmm. that. They were like, we want to push Bach on the modern world. And there was this whole like push around it. So obviously Rachel had the inside info that this was going on and through having her relationship with Wendy, they came up with this idea together, which Wendy had already started playing with some ideas for this. It was a Bach revival. Like there's been many Bach revivals. Yes, exactly. And this was just happened to be one of them. So once again, she's in the right place at the right time. There's a Bach revival who better to introduce a modern way of listening to Bach than Wendy Carlos, who obviously has the chops and the interest and the ability and the innovation. Probably um, the familiarity too with the Right, work. right. Because yeah. she studied all that stuff and has been playing since she was six. So you can't, um, as someone who was trained classically on piano, there is no escaping Bach. You are, it's just, you have to, you have to do Bach. So I have you know, some strong feelings about my experiences having to play Bach, which I did not enjoy. So it's oh, hard I've for me. I have not heard these stories. <laughs> I just, there was a season of my training where I was told I had to only play Bach inventions, mm. um, which are amazing. And they teach you so much and you get so much, uh, like agility and dexterity from practicing them. Oh, they were hard, were they? They are maddening. They're maddening. They're just maddening. And to do only that, it just sort of, you know, started to get to me. Um, So when I I have a little resistance to listening to Switched On Bach and like caring about it, (laughs) but when I do, I'm always like, okay, this is on another level. This is a different kind of experience. This is about the sounds that she was crafting and, and obviously her ability to play, but it's so much more than that. So I'm trying to be more open about Bach, but it's, it's not what I'm most excited about. Let's just say. So yes, like we were saying, Rachel was a big reason why this album even existed and why it was able to be released on Columbia and why it was able to sell a million copies. Uh, So without Rachel, I don't think any of that, any of that would have happened because Wendy was doing jingles and like trying to make side money to work on her inventions and compositions. Yeah. I don't, Wendy, Wendy didn't wake up in the morning thinking like, you know, it would be great. Bach and synthesizers. <laughs> right. So basically Columbia was like, how about switched on Bach? And then Wendy was like, yes, that is, that is a good title. We should One use that. One of the few <laughs> times I've actually heard of an artist wholeheartedly agreeing yeah. with a label when they step in in that regard. That's true. Cause that's um, some creative energy that they're 
making a suggestion like that, you know, like you rarely hear of people excited about a title that a record labels come back to them with right after their initial title was kind of declined. But this is one of those rare cases where it was like, yeah, switched on Bach. That's what, that's what the kids stroke of genius want to hear. That's what the kids want to hear. So it did sell a million copies. It did go platinum. I think it was the first, uh, classical album to sell over a million copies and the first electronic album to chart. It was gangbusters, y'all. Gangbusters. So it brought, because it was Bach and because it was being pushed by this major label, it brought synthesizers into everyone's home. So, I mean, that was just 1968 and everyone's having to hear the Moog synthesizer. Couldn't have been better for Bob Moog, Bob Moog yeah, to get that kind of publicity. <laughs> the mini Moog came out shortly after that. Yeah, just two Probably years after. it had a lot to do with how successful that synthesizer was. Yeah, so, so when he talks about how in 1969, so it came out in 68, it didn't get its Grammys till 70. So between 68 and 70, it's like becoming well-known, right? In 69, they went on the Today Show with Bob, her, her and Bob, and they did a public demonstration of the synth on the Today Show in 1969. I cannot find this anywhere. So if you have your own VHS rip that you did of it or something, like I would love to see it because she does claim that this would have been the first sort of, you know, public broadcast demonstration of a synthesizer and Bob got to be there too. And she was very adamant, like, I want him here. I want him to help, you know. Yeah, it wasn't Suzanne Ciani. Right. I know. I was thinking about that. I was like, when I think of that, I think about Suzanne Ciani on David Letterman, but Wendy did it first. No surprise. She got an advance from Columbia to get more Moog stuff to make this album. So, but this just catapults her. She becomes just so, so, so well known. Um, and I think because of this, right, Kubrick heard switched on Bach and then asked her to do clockwork. Right. When you so, listen to the score of that film, you understand why. I yeah. Mean, it's, I mean, he didn't use it all. So there's, there's the, Ludwig the, von. the Kubrick of it all, right? He will ask you to do his score and then not use your score. Obviously, we're big fans of Kubrick. He's complicated, but that's for, that's for a different podcast that we don't host. Uh, so there is a version of A Clockwork Orange that Wendy put out later of her music that didn't make it into the film, which is most of it mm-hmm. <laughs> and longer versions of things that he did use. But I, I love this point because so many of the people we've talked about in previous, you know, when we were just doing this on YouTube before it was a podcast, we covered other people that turned Kubrick down for several, you know, 2001 is the most common one that he asked a lot of people to do that score uh, from the electronic music world. And they all turned him down. And it makes sense. The more you study Kubrick's trajectory and how he was received in the business and, you know, like he didn't have that great of a reputation for being somebody that, you know, was good to partner with or putting out content that was even going to to be be shown. (laughs) Yeah. You wanted to be associated with, or it was going to be shown a proper run in theaters and whatnot. So it kind of makes sense. It was sort of an edgy move for Wendy to work. I know. I was thinking about that. I was like, I wonder, you know, I want, you know, I'm sure she's written about it somewhere in the behemoth of her website about, you know, what made her think this is the right project for me. And I, I don't know why, because that would have been her first foray into film scoring, which previous to that, she you know had just been doing her own compositions for an album of music. Well, it wasn't his first film. She must have been a fan of his work. Must have been. I, I mean, I think. for the people who turned him down for 2001, I guess that would make more sense. But once that became such a mega hit, to be asked to do his next film, you know, she was, she was into it. Um, and... Again, you have to buy <laughs> her score from her if you can find it. Um, it's very cool, the cover. Because, you know, for Swished on Bach, there's, you know, the person pretending to be Bach on the cover. And for the cover of A Clockwork Orange, the reissue that she did, because I think Columbia actually put out on vinyl the first issue of of her version of Clockwork Orange score. Uh, but then she reissued it on CD and the cover is Beethoven, like passing you a glass of milk through the, through the triangle. So I just, I love the, the Ludwig von of her, um, you know, she understands the message she's sending through, you know, the visuals as well. 
very fun stuff. She's she's got a good sense of humor too, I think, about everything. But yeah, so she, you know, went from being, you know, the biggest electronic music album of all time to scoring, you know, these huge films. And she worked with Kubrick again and he did it to her again on The Shining. That was quite a few years later, right? So Clockwork Orange is in 72 and The Shining's in 81. She's doing a lot in between there. Something fun I read was that she included, I want to say it was with the well-tempered synthesizer, she included a self-addressed stamped envelope with the record, like with the release that was going out. I don't know, I guess final. Um, For people to tell her and mail it back to her what they wanted her to do next. Oh, wow. Like a little survey. Yeah. But she did it like through the mail and that became her album by request where she did the cover of what's new pussycat. Ah, yes. That's another one of her big hits. Mm -hmm. Tom Jones. Um, I cannot hear the name of that song without thinking of the John Mulaney bit. I'm so sorry. That's where my brain is at right now. Um, if you have not, I think about it too. If you're even sort of a fan of John Mulaney's comedy, um, just Google what's, what's new pussycat and you'll see his bit about it. Um, and then play, play Wendy's version in the background while you're listening to his bit. I think, I think that's the way to go. Yeah. I should try that sometime. So she was doing, you know, more albums, right, in between these film scores as well. And, yeah, so she did The Shining. Uh, She did another film that didn't come out, which I got to find the name of. Um, And then she did Tron. So I think Tron is most... So I polled a lot of people in the group. Classic film from my childhood. You know, and on our page and stuff, uh, you know, how did you first hear about Wendy? And it was split between... Clockwork and Tron. Clockwork and Tron. So some people said that they, you know, switched on Bach, but most of them heard about her from Clockwork and then went back and listened to Switched on Bach. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's another sort of generation of people who heard Tron first. And I was reading about how she insisted on having the uh, Philharmonic as part of it. So I wasn't sure if it was like, oh, someone's hiring, you know, Disney is hiring her to do the score, but they need the orchestra element to be there because that's sort of a classical, uh, and I don't mean that in classical music, but sort of, you know, a classical film score is there's going to be an orchestra or the fact that, you know, she's known for classical music for switched on box. So we've got to have the classical element, but it was actually her insistence that she wanted that. Well, it takes a little bit of the time element and stress away from her from her doing one note at a time i don't think she was doing it at that point but just you know to go back to you know her process using the synthesizers to make this music you know at the time the moog was one note at a time so explain to us gus how she took one note at a time and turned it into switched on bach well i think first and foremost she she had two keyboards Okay. So her Moog was technically polyphonic in that regard. Okay. And it was one of the first aspect, you know, one of the first examples of that being true. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, still, I think a lot of the there was a lot of multi-tracking involved. You know, like if there were chords. Well, one of the things that I remember her saying was that, you know, a lot of um, box music is one note at a time. So that goes hand in hand with a synthesizer <laughs> that is forcing you to make one note at a time. Um, you know, so you, she could do, you know, at least like one pass per instrument mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than there being a section that would involve, you know, chordal patterns, you know, from a specific instrument group, mm-hmm. you know, she could at least cover the instrument with a single pass. Um, but, but yeah, and I think the other thing was that she had, you know, at least two keyboards. So she But would could, she also take, you know, the eight-track tape recorder that I believe she says is like the first eight-track? Well, I wouldn't say it's the first eight-track. It was pieced that she, together. That she, yeah. Out of parts, you know, maybe an eight-track existed, but it wasn't Outside of like major studios. Right, it wasn't something that was easily accessible. But it was specifically so she could layer 
the sounds, yeah. right? So in, cor- in order to create like the fullness of the tone of, had to map it out. of the instrument, right? Yeah. She would layer like a less bright, a deeper tone. She would layer those together in order to create the tone she was going for. And she does it with such ease. She acts like it's not even a big deal, but yeah. And luckily her, her system was big painstaking enough. process. But I would say, you know, the thing that, I'm learning from having a little bit bigger modular system myself is that having a bigger system, having more oscillators allows you to, you know, at least make a more robust sound, you know, like with one note, Mm -hmm. like you could blend a few different oscillators, you know, playing different intervals and, you know, get kind of a chord sound from just hitting one note. Mm-hmm. And or at least you know create a timbre using multiple oscillators that ends up sounding like a realistic yes, horn exactly. or woodwind instrument, you know, and combining elements, um, you know, before running them into the filter and using multiple envelopes, which she had no shortage of, um, you know, in order to create dynamics within the timbre of the sound, um, but. You know, nevertheless, quite the painstaking process. I gather that her actually playing the pieces was the simplest aspect. Yes. You know, whereas like if I tried to play Bach, like that that would you know be the end of me. Like (laughs) right, the part that would uh, would hold us back was the easy part in her process. Right. Like you know, it's like she could sort of concentrate on the timbres. Because she mm-hmm. was so proficient yes. at her instrument. I think that's true. You know, so I think that helped out a lot. You know, when you're able to focus your energy on like, okay, what how do I make the best synthesized version of this sound? Mm-hmm. You know, rather than, you know, just messing up all over <laughs> Can the place. I even play this? When when you're trying to play back the piece. And especially with tape, you know, which is not very forgiving exactly. in that regard, which, you know, we know and love that about tape. But, um, you know, when you're trying to do something as meticulous as recreate a box score, it's not right. And her uh, approach to doing this uh, inspired Tomita, if you're familiar with his work, which we've also covered a bit uh, in the group. He heard her music and the way she was making it and then took it to another level uh, in this same way. This very painstaking process. Yeah, I mean, he looked at it as like didn't he didn't care how much work it took, but it's just the idea that with a synthesizer and a multi-track tape machine, it's possible. Right. You know? If it's possible, so, she's going to see it through and make it happen. Right. Nothing holds her back. Well, I love and Tamita as well yeah. like, took that same approach of like, yeah. hey, if I can do but it, also, like, I don't very care much, how many hours I spend uh, in the studio. Right. Like, I don't really have friends or family. Um, I just do this process to get the result. And the result is amazing. And I'm very grateful that it all exists. But wow, the sacrifice for the tape music is real. And I will say that, like, that's one of the things about, you know, and, and, I'm getting a little bit of my head myself here, but Wendy ends up really embracing the digital and computer mm-hmm. aspect of, of recording and everything. But like, I would say that that's interesting to me um, that you don't see more people celebrating the fact that unlimited possibilities are available with the computer. I feel like the scales are tipped a little bit too much in that direction of unlimited possibilities right being you know but imagine you know growing up in a world where you're having to like piece together a computer and build it from components and it's very very limited uh to now anything is possible whereas we come from the side of everything is already possible has already been possible it's already been done entire lives i'm like more curious about the building blocks i'm more curious about the history like where did this all start and how did we end up here whereas they were part of the wave that got us here so uh, did you know that Stevie Wonder once came to her studio? No. I have so many little fun facts. That's somebody and who there's I've so much to talk about. Paths but with multiple times. Yeah, he's a real synth enthusiast. He's a gearhead. He is serious about synths. No joke. Yeah. First time I ran into him was at Nam. Yeah, he was like any one of us, just wandering around playing all the new synths. He was playing the Dave Smith Instruments um, drum machine, the the new one at the time. I forget the name of it. Tempest. Tempest. So he came to her studio 
and played with her synthesizer. And I don't know what came of it, but I know know, that he was really big into Moog. Yeah, he had uh, a mini Moog pretty early on. Yeah. So they crossed paths, which is awesome. Um, Can you imagine if they had collaborated? It didn't happen as far as I know. Mm. Something that has been coming up, a lot of people have been telling me, hey, did you know that Wendy used the vocoder in Clockwork Orange and that probably hadn't been done before? If you, again, go on her site, we'll try to find all the stuff that we're talking about specifically and share it in the group so you don't have to dig around like we did. Um, She talked about how, you know, it it appears that her use of the vocoder as part of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on Clockwork was considered the first use of it. Um, This is in 1970, it says, when she was using it to prepare the score. Um, I'm, I'm not sure first what first you know she she didn't didn't invent invent the vocoder but i will say that from what i gather and based on the website information and um you know images of her studio um it was a patch uh rather than a module Mm -hmm. so i think she had uh to get a little bit nerdy about it um she had a uh filter bank two filter banks one for the encoding and one for the decoding of the different uh, bands. And there were many envelope followers, like several, like 10, 12 or something like that, one for each band for the encoding and the, the decoding. Um, so it was it was more of a patch that was made from existing modules that she just had, you know. Which co- I, I think she didn't even refer to it as a vocoder. It was like a spectrum follower or something. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's one of the many terms that's associated with vocoding. So um, she was playing around with that idea. Uh, Rachel was the the voice that was used. So when you hear the voice on the soundtrack, that's Rachel. Um, but what's funny is on her website, she talks about how, so that was in 1970. She says by 1979, the vocoder was so cliche. She was over it because it had been used for like every sci-fi robot voice, you know, every alien was all vocoder and she was done with it. And it was being used too much in disco is what she thought. So she had moved on. Those are, those are her strong feelings about the vocoder. Too much Marauder. Too much Marauder. Oh man. A Wendy Carlos covers Marauder and it's called too much Marauder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's so much. She's done so much and I still want so much more from her. She, okay, so 1979, she hates vocoders. She thinks they're over. Disco is dead. And she starts building her first digital synth. Dun, dun, dun. She built her first digital synth? That's what it said. She was building her first digital synth in 1979. She had a lot of ideas about what she wanted to accomplish. And she knew, I think from a mathematical standpoint, that it was going to require computers to be involved. Well, she could code. And she could code. She would code these Things specifically related to the microtuning. Right, which we haven't talked about yet. We <sighs> haven't even talked wanna... about microtuning. I need that. Oh, that's a whole other podcast for someone else to talk about because we're not. I don't want to get into com- the nitty composition of it, nerds, but, but yeah. More or less. She the, invented the 12 tone scale <laughs> was not good enough for Wendy. And she wanted to be able to, you know, have some of the intervals, you know, have different relationships to one another tuning wise. And that's the, that's well, she the gist felt of that it. the 12 tone scale was out of tune. Right. And that's the gist of it. She wanted a better sounding major triad or whatever. Yeah. Like so it. she developed the alpha, beta and gamma scales, which tunings. tunings, which are considered like some of the most pure. And if you have digital performer, you can download the actual tables. I don't even know what that is. Cause I'm not a digital performer guy, but you can yeah. download the tuning tables from her website, which is pretty cool. She was really about, you know, building these things out and then sharing them as well. So with the switched on box box set, she also included, you could download a synthesizer that she built. Like a soft synth. This is 1999. Then she put this out and there was like all these extras and, you know, more information on the making of it and stuff in the booklet. But there was also like a lot of downloadable stuff. She Do you remember super in, into MIDI. In 1999, yeah. when you'd get CDs, they would have like, other stuff oh yeah they would be what was called a yellow book cd which is a cd rom oh i forgot you know a lot about this and you were gonna jump right in (laughs) 
Yeah, there would always be like extra files or other things you could download as part of the CD. Mm-hmm. CDs were crazy. The height of CDs was what a ride. Uh, she also compares herself to Disney, which I don't, I don't know if she always felt that way or after working on the Disney film felt even more that way. But she said the way that Disney works with animation, that they have to go frame by frame, right? Like the meticulous work of animating, she compared to how she builds the color and the, the tone of her sounds. Because she was really into additive synthesis yes. later on, which involves, you know, just using tone palettes, the one that she used. I was just reading about it. It's called the Synergy. Mm. Um, and you could get 24 tones that could be switched out with like tone cards. And I would think of it as like adding, you know, harmonics, you know, like you can just add different harmonics uh, with little sliders. But I guess in that particular synthesizer, they're called tones. Um, and you know, it works similarly to like an organ where you're like adding the harmonics together to form more complex timbres. She was into a lot at this time, especially I think when she got into, you know, Rachel moved to France in 1980 and you know, she's doing more film scores and she's working in digital synthesis and she's just exploring and inventing and trying all of these things and seeming very happy and fulfilled. Um, And then, you know, once CDs came out, she felt that CD was the superior format. She was not a big vinyl fan. Um, She doesn't understand why anyone would want to go back to that. CDs are the ultimate. Wait to go digital, MIDI, CD. Yeah. And get away from the Moog, honestly. Like, you know, she still would use it for auxiliary stuff, but like, you know, that the, the latter part of her career where she got into digital was her happiest time. I would say in Mm -hmm. terms of like Mm -hmm. her synergy with the gear, no pun intended. No, I would say that's absolutely true because like, I feel like her mind moves at the rate of a computer and she calls herself the original synth, which I think kind of implies this idea that she is one with the machine or that like her ideas and her implementation of them is sort of at this machine level. And what kicked things off for her? We've already talked about it. She won a, yeah. you know, a science fair for building a computer. Yeah. So she was she was very much into computers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it makes sense for someone who has that sort of computer mind to reject <laughs> Uh, how out of tune, you know, like a, a Moog is going to go after an hour. Yeah. yeah, she did joke about, you know, how much it went out of tune. It must've just been a bear, you know, yeah. because if you listen to, you know, switched on Bach and any of her work really, it's in tune. It's completely in tune. It's she did say the that most in that's tune. what she spent most of her time on. Was yeah. that, you know, so that wasn't like she was just going to let it be dissonant, you know? Oh no, no, no. The precision. Well, we, uh, not to like always tie in other people we've talked about, but Sun Ra, who we talked about on our last episode was very much his whole ethos was discipline and precision. Uh, And when I think of discipline and precision, I think of Wendy Carlos. But when you think of discipline and precision, I tend to think of like sort of a militaristic attitude and like that sounds, that doesn't sound fun to me. But she has this discipline and precision while still being like such an animated, fun person. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't bog her down at all. It's just how she thinks. It's natural for her. It's not a struggle. I did want to mention another thing about tape. As much as I can. <laughs> um, when she Never was doing her, she's doing her reissues, right, of everything on CD. Well, she has to go back to her master tapes to do this, right? So there was a period between 1980 and 1985 where Ampex started using polyurethane based binders and they did not, she did not like this and they did not hold up as well. And she was very upset. Because this now became the standard. So she was using Ampex and 3M tapes for her masters. And Ampex started this trend and then 3M jumped on it, even though it was clear that this was not the way to go. So for those who are familiar with tape, that's known as the sticky shed syndrome. It's a real problem. Like I'm actually looking at a box of Mm. 
old tapes right now and some of them have that and they definitely leave a residue so i can understand her frustration with that i mean she's absolutely you know joins you know pretty much every engineer in being annoyed that that happened all of a sudden you know it's like things were fine tapes weren't falling apart and now all of a sudden they are and it's just because of a manufacturing decision and why wasn't the tape company smart enough to know that this was going to happen and was it like a cost thing or was it they thought it was an innovation like i don't understand i don't know the i've never heard anybody talk about the benefits of that yeah design but they it was only for a time um and then i guess no tapes were made after that right well i mean it might have led to the downfall of it could it probably did that's they were like and they shed so yeah let's move on so there's a period of time where her master tapes are extremely fragile Similar to, you know, Delia Derbyshire's archive, you know, they, they listen to them once they archive them and they put them away cause they're not going to last. Um, but you know, prior to that, they're in good shape. She did say, you know, she's not like super anti-vinyl, but she just says like CD is better only if the original master tapes are good and were mastered in a way that you can, you know, she remixed and mastered, you know, everything for CD. But not only did she do that with CD, she also did that with her photographs. Right. Um, you know, she would constantly be like finding the original negatives mm-hmm. or the slides and retouching them up in whatever the newest version of Photoshop was. Um, you know, so I'd say remastering was, you know, something that she was big when, on. When the better technology came along, she was like, finally. She couldn't wait. Now I can go implement. back to my original prints and masters and, and make this what it was meant to be. Which makes sense. I mean, I, I remember, you know, pretty much the entire CD era. And I it was very common to see your favorite, you know, it was how they sold really the CD version was to say it was remastered for CD or remastered for digital, remastered for compact disc, you know, and that was a big deal. So the idea that Wendy was into that was very much of the times, you know, it was, it Mm -hmm. was an era of like excitement around digital and, um, you know, happy to archive, Mm -hmm. you know, analog, um, because you don't have to worry about the deterioration. Yeah. It, it is a good thing. And that's why we always say, like, we're not purists about well, tape. Um, I mean, I, I kind of To am. an extent. But I just mean that we do have computers and, you know. I want to keep my tapes, too. And, <laughs> yeah, we and want it all, Remaster them in 20 years from now. I think it's good to keep the original. We're definitely passionate about the we tape format. We record the tape. Yeah. You know, I come from a computer music background and had digital synthesizers before I had analog ones. So just, you know, as we wrap up this conversation, which could go on for centuries, I just want to hit, you know, that she invented ambient music. And I'm just going to say that because I believe she deserves more credit for it. So if I say that it'll create more conversation because at least seven people are going to tell me that I'm wrong and then we'll get to talk about it. I think she invented new age. Her album, Sonic Seasonings, please come at, Augustus for that, not me. Uh, Sonic Seasonings came out in 72. So put that in the timeline. Uh, she was very, you know, excited by this type of new age music as well. She didn't want to only make classical music with synthesizers. And she also really didn't want synthesizers to be thought of as only sci-fi sound effects, which, you know, is kind of what we love them for. But we get it. She was trying to expand what people thought of synthesizers for that they can do so much more than just make bleeps and bloops. Well, in a way we're sort of taking it um, back the other direction. We're saying Mm -hmm. like, you know, anything is, you can recreate any instrument sound with a synthesizer, you know, which was like the thing to do in like the eighties and nineties. We're saying like, what if they were just effects? What if it was just, and what if those effects created melodies and, them and yeah and what yeah. if it what if it just reminded you of outer space what if these were just effects devices and how we are made of the same elements that are in outer space speaking of outer space wendy was also an astrophotographer now i feel like i'm leading a tour around the wendy carlos museum um now jacqueline's ready over to here speak to the right you can see stuff. her display of astrophotography well she specifically solar eclipses. So again, there's a section on her website 
just about her eclipse photography. Which is super challenging, by the way. Like, once again, It's not an easy thing to do. Like, you know, that is not an easy area of photography to master or get into. And she chased try. eclipses. Like, she went around the world. Rachel went with her a few times as well. NASA actually published some of her work. So she's even developed techniques for doing this. No surprise. No surprise. <laughs> no surprise for the photography itself as well as, you know, developing the images. So that's a fun thing for you to explore on your own time is looking at her photography and her techniques for that, if that sounds interesting to you. Another thing that we were really trying to find out more about was we know that she was big you know, into Moog. Obviously, she worked with Bob Moog to develop a lot of things that, you know, we kind of take for granted today. One of which is that she's the reason for the touch-sensitive keyboard or, you know, depth-sensitive. Yeah, um, like the velocity-sensitive, mm -hmm. if you will, but not called that necessarily right. back then. Um, so, as you press the key, you know, it, it, you know, like on a regular piano, how hard or soft you hit it has, you know an effect on the dynamics. Right. And right. so she needed that. And so Bob Moog made that possible. And that was the first known, you know, synthesizer keyboard to have that element. Um, but we were really curious, you know, she's obviously really involved in the development of synths and did she know about Bukla, right? Cause that's the, the synthesizers we use. Did she know about these other systems and what did she think of them? Because we know she's not shy about her opinions. Well, the fact that there's no comments that we could find. I found one. Oh, you did? Yes, which I, I need to find it and read it. But in um, the June 1971 edition of the Whole Earth Catalog, she contrasted the Moog, the Bukla, and the Arp. Because that's what would have been around in 1971. I don't know what she thought about them because I haven't found this article, but that's what she wrote about. And she also... Ooh, a cliffhanger she, here. I know she dismissed the Putney, the EMS Putney, and the Mini Moog. She thought they were cash-ins, so she didn't like them. She didn't think that they were worth her time. Which, you know, I get that it's not worth her time, but for a lot of people, that was their entry point because it's a smaller, more affordable system. You know, they can get into synths that way. Well, neither um, synths. But I want to know what she thought about Bukla. Controlled very well, mm. um, especially the Putney. From what I read, like you know, you could not make that thing play in tune. <laughs> um, so I could understand why right off the bat, you know, that would upset Wendy. But really, she thought they were just toys, which is like, well, that's fine too, right? Sure. Anyway, that's all I could find about. I make music her. with a synth that's yeah, built out of a tin. You know, a. a shortbread tin so yeah i mean toys are fun toys are always in the mix for us too i'm sure a lot of you listening are aware of or even dabble in circuit bending uh of toys and things so that can always be fun i know i do what have we forgotten a million things I, there's probably 10 things i'm going to think of tomorrow that i wish i had said or brought up or you know, well, it doesn't mean they're not part much. of the discussion. There's too much. <laughs> like, too much. Feel free to hard. keep the discussion alive. The, so this is really just the beginning of the discussion. So, you know, we hope to hear from you about what you know, what inspired you from this conversation, what more you found out. Because we're not going to be able to stop here, right? This is this is just the tip of the iceberg for us. Any any final closing important thoughts you have, Jess? How has um, she inspired you, or was there anything that we forgot to talk about? Well, the other thing that I was really inspired by was um, I took a very detailed uh, sort of rabbit hole look at all of her studio mm. photographs, um, and I got a lot of ideas uh, from those how I might want to lay out our studio. That's right. So, Thank you, Wendy, for reminding us that we can always make things better and cooler and more functional. It was the functional <laughs> aspect. Like, you know, just the fact that, you know, I, I could tell that she put a lot of thought into making the studio functional for herself. Um, and judging by the amount of work she was getting and everything, that must've been really crucial because mm -hmm. time is money. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to save time and, and have a productive studio session, you know, the layout and everything's really important. So, you know, I took a few tips, you know, from her and we're now redesigning our studio. And, you know, so that definitely inspired me. Yeah, this is like 
real life for us. You know, like we're doing this research, we're sharing it with you, we're collaborating in the group, uh, but it affects our life and our music making and our process and our studio setup. Like each person that we've studied so far has, you know, opened us up in a new way. So hopefully it does that for you too, because we're having a lot of fun with this. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for joining us on another episode of the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast. Before we say our farewells, we are going to cover our personal music that was submitted for this segment. The first track is by Robert St. John, and it is called Theme for Space Cat. It features a Minimoog Model D and a Sub 37. This next piece was composed by Johann Packobel. It is performed by Scott Ampleford on the stylophone, and it is called Canon in D major. I just wanted to take a minute to um, mention Source of Uncertainty podcast, um, which is uh, created by our friends Kyle and Robert. Um, they are the hosts of that. It is Bukla centric, and uh, you can get information for that at sourceofuncertainty.audio. And um, it's an awesome podcast. Um, I definitely listen to every episode. They do artist features. Um, we've been on it. Um, but yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, if you want to get into more synth talk, that's a really good podcast. 
to jump into and we hope you listen to it let us know if you if you find that entertaining and educational he's also a group member yeah Kyle feel free you know Robert, I believe. Yeah, they're both ask members. questions in the group so i guess this will be my plug for if you're listening to this and you're not part of our private facebook group called the cosmic tape music club uh please join us there we'll put a link in the show notes so that you can find that easily um but it's important to mention that that is the you know forum and yeah by which this podcast was created yeah so it started out as just something that we were doing for fun covering you know people very informally and <laughs> i know but you know it, it started with the facebook group and so the facebook group is still a very integral part of our yeah it's been i think we just hit 2000 members like yesterday of our mission so i should have celebrated that more but it's been really fun just people that we would never meet otherwise and getting to have really in-depth conversations about things and getting advice and you know being led down rabbit holes you know constantly um and just knowing that there's other people out there who are nerdy like us who care about this stuff and want to know more and want to keep it alive so it's been really fun cosmic tape music club on facebook will Put that link in there for you to join we hope we see you there you can also email us you know we're, we're out there you can find us but please let us know uh if you're enjoying this podcast you can leave a review should i plug that i should probably tell you to leave a review it helps other people find us and you know grows the community so we can keep this going so leave a review let us know what you think join us in the group and we will see you next time see you next time <laughs>